Many of you may know the name William Carey up here. Um, I guarantee that all of you have in some level, because you're here, you've been influenced and impacted, whether directly or indirectly, by his life. Let me just give you just a quick recap of, of who, who, who he is. So as a young boy, teenager or so, he accepted Christ. And uh, when, when he started to grow in his faith, he became very zealous for the Lord. And, and um, he had pretty humble beginnings. He grew up in a, in a little poor village in England. He was a shoe, they call it a cobbler, you know what that is, it's a a shoe repair person, a shoe maker, and he um, stayed in that trade up through his early adolescence, his early adulthood years, as he continued to study languages and study the Bible, and he came across a book that was a biography of a man named David Brainerd. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, This is a man who died very young, um, serving the Lord. He had uh, uh, tuberculosis most all of his adult life, and he tirelessly went about serving and sharing the gospel to the Native Americans on the eastern shore of of the United States. And uh, through all of his sickness and all of these things, he just kept going out and uh, serving Christ. And this little biography so impacted William Carey, that uh, he was at his little church, it was a little Reformed Baptist church, and he, he stood up and he said, I feel God is calling me to go to the people of India to share the gospel with them. And at that service, he, as he stood up, there was an, an older man in the congregation that may have been well-meaning, but certainly was misguided. And he said, young man, this is a quote from him, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Talk about just encouraging the younger to go out and and uh, grow in their faith, right? Well, uh, William Carey was a very respectful young man, and so he didn't, speak out against this this senior uh, elder in the church at that point in time what he did instead was he wrote a book <laughs> and and this book has a small little title i'm going to show it to you here's the title I don't, you won't be able to read it it says an inquiry into the obligations of christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens <laughs> this was his response to that man's statement And not only was it that man's statement, but it's his response to an ideology in the hearts and the minds of of a lot of Christians of that that era. That God did not need us, people, to go about converting the world. He would do it on his own. And so he writes this book, and he he terms that that, that phrase, Christian will to use means for the conversion of heathens. So... This book became, especially against Christian scholars, as one of the ten most valuable, influential books in all of Christian history. The Bible, number one, of course, but this fits into the top ten because of the way that it changed. And William Carey, this man, became known as, and it's still known as, the, the father of modern-day modern missions. As we know, overseas missions today, it came from um, this little book and his approach and his ministry to to India. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about him later, but it it applies for this reason. We come now and we're in the glorious gospel of Mark. Uh, We're about midway through. We'll we'll crack chapter 8 next week. 
Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 37. And here in these, these few verses, we're given some, some means, some means by which we might employ the greatest work we could ever put our hands to, the, the sharing of the gospel of Christ Jesus to the world. We're given some, some, um, some means in which we get to do that. We get to observe Christ as he does this and, and, and grow and learn from his exam, example. So follow along, Mark chapter 7, as, as I read. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into the ears, into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said, Epitha, that is, to be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So some quick context to where we're at here. Uh, Verse 31 says, He departed from the region of Tyre and Sidon. He came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So here's a picture. This is, this is kind of where we were at last week, kind of up in this area, Tyre and Sidon. He was kind of probably more down this direction. This is where the, the Syrophoenician woman was at. He had just healed her daughter by speaking a word, her daughter who was possessed by an evil spirit. And, and so he traveled at this point from this area, this region. He traveled down to the area of the Decapolis. Now, what we know about the Decapolis is that Deca means 10. So this is a kind of a conglomerate of cities and towns that really didn't have any official government. They were a little bit autonomous, but they were known to Jewish culture as being a pagan region. All of those areas were were filth, according to, to Jewish custom and Jewish belief. Um, so Jesus is, is down in that direction. As you can tell, it's kind of a, a, a big, long route, not an easy route. We don't really know how long that took. Some commentators think that this was a three- to six-month journey. Um, we don't even have any record of what happened in any of the four Gospels during that particular time. Uh, but what we do know is that Jesus is now preparing for the end. Um, basically up until this point of the Gospel of Mark, the first seven chapters we've dealt with the first couple years, um, two and a half years of of his ministry. Now we're kind of coming over the apex of that, and we're going to deal with a much more compressed time period. But what we do know is during this time, during this travel, he's starting to prep his disciples for the day in which he is going to be taken, uh, murdered for all of our behalf. So he comes down to this area, and then he goes up to... It goes up to this kind of uh, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what's interesting about this, the Sea of Galilee, the last time we heard about this area in the Gospel of Mark was chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Jesus healed uh, a man that was uh, demon-possessed, and he lived in the catacombs. He was, if you remember, he's the demoniac. He was chained up. He cried out day and night because of the torment of these demons in him. And, and Jesus arrives on a boat. This demon-possessed man runs, falls at Jesus' feet. Jesus um, exercises the demon out of him. And this man is so obviously 
excited about that, that he, he wants to follow Jesus, jump in the boat with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, go. Go amongst the town, amongst your people, and share what the Lord has done for you. So that's kind of the last time we were at this place, at this particular region, and it's been quite some time. And so really this demon-possessed man, the demoniac, became a missionary for Jesus right here in this area, which he's now returning to some months, maybe even a year or so later. Uh, so uh, we get the feeling as he comes back to this area that he's well-received because of the message that this, this demoniac missionary brought. Because if you remember... Jesus had cast all of the demons that came out of the demoniac into the pigs. And as they went into the pigs, um, all of the people came from the town out to Jesus, and they wanted Jesus gone. They asked him to leave. They were terrified by him, and they wanted him out of their region. So he was pushed out of the region at that point in time. So this go-around, it seems like the ministry of this demoniac um, has softened the people's hearts towards Christ, and he's more well-received. And we see that here in verse 32. It says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. They begged him to lay his hands on him. So I just want a quick side note here, uh, just for us as we, as, we, as we go on. You want to be a good friend to someone? Uh, lead that person to Jesus. Point that person to Jesus. Bring that person. To, there's so many options today of pop psychology, Oprahisms, books, things like that in which... What we can point people to, but these friends, these are true friends. They see this need in their friend, and they they know the one place that that person can find healing, and they bring him to Christ. Now, um, this man, the man who they brought, uh, kind of the key figure in our story, this man is deaf. He's deaf, and we know what deaf is, but he's he's also known as dumb, or the word we've heard before, tongue-tied, speech impediment. That's kind of the word that's used. Now, I don't want to go into this in too much length, but I think this is really important for the context of what Mark is doing here. This word for speech impediment, or dumb, or tongue-tied, <clears throat> is used one time in all of the New Testament. It's used right here. Why would Mark use... There's lots of other words for people that couldn't speak. Why would Mark use this particular translation of the word? Well, there is a a very logical reason. It's also only used, this word of being mute or tongue-tied, one time in the entirety of the Old Testament, which is actually the Greek translation of the New Testament. You've got to hang with me. This is a little bit of, it could be boring, but it's, it's exciting stuff. For me, it's exciting. You're like, oh, but just hang with me. So, so this is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, so Mark's audience, who was Roman Greek, a Roman Greek audience, certainly they would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament in the Greek form. So the Septuagint, and there's only one time in the Greek old, the Greek, the Greek Old Testament that. This word is used, and it's in Isaiah. It's in the passage that Kylie read for us this morning. And what's awesome about that is that in this passage, so, so Isaiah is broken into two major categories. The first half of Isaiah is a prophecy of doom and judgment on the nation of Israel for the way that they have abandoned God and, and, and ran off with other gods and, and kind of hoard out their hearts to, to, to false religion and to, to religion as a whole. The second half of Isaiah is, is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah who would redeem them, would save them, the people. But the thing about it is, it's not just the Jewish people, it's also the Gentile people, all of the people. And so Mark, 
as he writes this, um, he intentionally, most all people believe, he intentionally uses this word that's only used one time in the Old Testament because as his readers of the New Testament hear and see Jesus healing this mute man with a speech impediment, they immediately think of that passage in Isaiah uh, because they would have been very familiar with it. The passage says, Then the eyes of the blind shall see and be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, that, that's the word there, the tongue of the mute or the speech impediment, they sing for joy. So just kind of a fun little backstory to what's going on in here, how Mark use, uses language. Now we kind of get, as we get the backdrop, we get to the heart of, of what we're talking about this morning in verse 33 when we talk about what, what are the means by which we see or the model of ministry that we get from the Savior. If we're going to to be seed scatterers like we've talked about if we're going to be ambassadors for the gospel of christ uh, what are the means in which we could employ to be most effective in that approach as i go through these four means i want to be very clear that this is not a formula to go about things there's a difference between the means and the way of going something and saying there's a formula i think people oftentimes and i'm this way I just want to be told exactly what to do, and so I try to put God into a box and say, this is how I should do certain things. Well, that's not how God operates. God never does the same thing the same way twice. This is more an example for us to follow a means in which we can be most effective. And the the first thing that we see in verse 33 is a loving touch. A loving touch, a means by which we can be effective for the gospel. A loving touch. It says, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. We're going to get to that. There's some weird things that come up in the Bible. That seems like one of the weird things. We'll get to it in just a minute. But Jesus never recoiled. He never recoiled at putting his hand, laying his hand on sinful humanity. Uh, One occasion that's just beautiful is in the gospel of Luke chapter 5 verse 12 we see this man that is full of leprosy that comes and falls down at Jesus's feet Jesus looked at this man as if no as no one had ever looked at him before uh, it's possible that no one has looked at this man or specifically touched this man in 20 or 30 years Can you imagine that for just a moment, what it would be like to never be able to physically touch another human being for the course of that time? Or, and a lot of times they couldn't touch animals either because animals were, they couldn't have a pet to comfort. They couldn't touch a living thing for 20 or 30 years. And here comes Jesus. This man falls at his feet in agony. And that's what our Savior does. He, he reaches down and he touches. And I, just how beautiful Christ is. He could have just like spoken a word to this leprosy guy. I mean, that's what a lot of people would have liked to have just like be healed. Um, but no, he, he reaches down, he lays his hand on this poor man in front of everybody, in front of multitudes of people, it says. He touches us. And all these onlookers and his disciples themselves, they were shocked by this. Why were they shocked? They were shocked because... Um, now Jesus would be ceremonially unclean. And in their thinking, he also thought, they thought that the, he could get that disease because of this. And there's perhaps several reasons why Christ would do this. And I think one is just natural. He would do this because that's who he is. That's the inclination of his gracious heart to reach out and touch, to love in that certain way. 
Uh, he wanted this leper to feel uh, his willingness and sympathy. The, the touch in that, he said, I'm with you, I understand. But, but kind of like that passage in Isaiah that we just read, uh, there, there, there might have been some human reasons, but there's a much deeper theological overshadowing reason why Christ would touch this, this man. Because the touch of, of Christ's pure hand on the rotting flesh of this leper was a picture of, and a, maybe a, a parable of, the incarnation of Christ. That is that God came in the flesh. Jesus in the incarnation took on the flesh and he became sin. Just like the song that we sung earlier, he became sin. Second Corinthians, this should be a verse that I think we all should know. My grandpa would read this. He would, he would every Christmas, he would read the Christmas story and then he would uh, read this and then we would open presents after reading second Corinthians for our for our sake he God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God so here now in our passage Jesus is dealing with this deaf man this deaf mute man and this is a lot different than that leprous man because what he does here is private it's a much more intimate encounter it says that he pulls this man aside from the multitudes from the crowds just to be alone with this guy with his disciples kind of looking on and 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 learning this this guy for far too long i'm sure had been the the brunt or the butt end of a lot of jokes a lot of times they say that that being being deaf is the worst of all impairments because you you really have no way to truly communicate, especially in a day when there wasn't sign language. And so here you have, you have Jesus that compassionately pulls this, this man away. And, and what that must have spoke to the, the multitudes that were there, because remember, Jesus at this stage of his ministry, there's not a good term for it. He would have been like a rock star. He would have been like a, the most popular person around. And everybody would have known that because of everything that he'd done, the demoniac that he had healed some time earlier and all the miracles that he's already done. Uh, there's many more miracles that are done that aren't actually recorded here. So, so all this is taking place. So all these people would have known that, and yet Jesus pulls this deaf mute, the one that they most likely have mocked most of his life. They pulls this guy aside in private. And um, now, this is where we get back to his actions. It can seem at first glance just really, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Um, well, it, it's, it's pretty obvious. It says that once they were alone, he thrust his fingers into his ears. Another translation, um, it's like he boxed his ears. He, he grabbed his ears with force. Uh, and then he spit and touched the man's haphazard tongue. Now, why would he do it? Why would he do these things? He would do these things. It's, it's sign language. It's sign language for this man. Sign language before sign language is, is, really, is really there. It doesn't make sense to us because we, we have all of our, 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 our senses, but the Savior is symbolically grabbing this guy with a loving touch. He pulls him away to get his attention, to communicate, because he most likely doesn't understand everything because he's not been able to hear and communicate in any kind of way. And so, so Jesus, Jesus pulls him away with this loving touch. And he could have, and what I want to mention is he could have done what he had just done in that other area with the, the demon-possessed girl. He could have spoken a word from a distance, but instead he pulls aside with a loving touch. He, he puts his hand on the ears of the man so that the man does I mean, here you see this guy that everybody's falling. All of a sudden he grabs him, pulls him aside, touches his ears, spits, touches his tongue. You think, well, that man would have understood. He, he's about to work a miracle. 
love and compassion. And, and I, you know, as we, as we look at this, if we as individuals here in this room, and if, if we as a church are going to be the means for the gospel to get out, our, our mission as a church is to, to reach with the gospel those that are close to us but far from Christ. That's our mission. If we're going to be effective at doing that, then we must be able to have a touch, a loving touch in, in our community. Awana, as Bill brought up earlier, is a loving touch point in our community. Uh, National Night Out, a loving touch point. Our, our service times in this morning, hopefully it's a touch point, especially, you know, that fellowship time. I'm a total introvert. You know that about me. I, it just makes me uncomfortable. But it's, it's like an important time for us to be able to, to reach out, to shake a hand, to, to, to touch. Um, uh, we want that for, for everybody here. Um, hopefully there's other ways. Uh, one, of the, one of the neat things that happened this week, I have to share this story with you. Uh, such a neat answer to prayer. So <clears throat> one of our missions, Open House Ministries down in Vancouver, uh, they put the word out to all of their support here a few weeks back. I'm going to get probably some small details of the story wrong, but uh, you'll get the big picture. They, they put out the word to all of their support. They have 73 beds where they take people in off the street, primarily women and families, and, and they, they help them in difficult seasons of life. Uh, they teach them life skills, how to balance a checkbook, how to be a good employee, how to do laundry. I mean, whatever the case might be, how to change a diaper in many cases. It's just a, an awesome, hands-on, kind of loving-touch ministry. And they had an infestation of bed bugs in their, in their uh, ministry. Seventy-three beds they needed to treat and so they put the word out thinking this is just, we, we don't know what we're going to do here. We, so we put the word all, all out. Well, that word came, that word came um, through Carrie, our office administrator, and, and the missions team, and they disseminated it to all of us in whatever means it came about, email, whatever. And so you guys went to work. So let's fast forward to this last Monday. Um, Carrie has gathered the means by which all of you participated in this, in this effort. And we at the time, I don't think knew, I don't think we knew all of the need, but we just did what we could do. And so she calls Claudia, who works at Open House Ministries and has been doing all this, and um, Carrie shares with Claudia what um, we're able to contribute to this this um, need. Well, Claudia, um, through deep emotion, says, praise God. She says, this morning I came in. I came in this morning, and we had a total of five um, of these 73 um, treatments taken care of. And I'm thinking what I'm going to do. So she said, I prayed to the Lord, and I just said, Lord, what are we going to do? And this is Claudia, says this out to Carrie. She says, the Lord said to me, that little church in Yakult is going to take care of this. Don't worry about it. And Carrie called and said, we have 71 treatments um, of these bed bugs. That's you guys. That's the touch of Christ. Um, and the fact that, the fact that um, that would take place and in that way that God would tell Claudia that you were going to take care of, you know, wow, that should just be exciting. Um, good job. Um, I, I'm overwhelmed by, by the, the gospel ministry, the loving touch that comes from you here in this place. Uh, all right, secondly... Means. The first ministry model we see is a loving touch. 
Continue what you're doing. The second ministry model is a heavenward prayer. A heavenward prayer. Pretty simple here. We're going to break this next verse down into three parts. It says, when Mark tells us that he looked up, Jesus looked up to heaven, we understand that the look was a visible indication of Jesus' life of prayerful communion and dependence upon the Father. The only time in all eternity in which that communion was broken was when Jesus was the sin bearer on the cross, uh, represented by 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we just read, and he cried out, Matthew 27.46, My God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in this constant communion with the Father, whether he was actually speaking to him or not. We've seen many times, even in this gospel, which I just love this gospel of Mark, so many times where Jesus says he got away to a quiet place to pray, sometimes by himself, sometimes he brings his boys along with him. But he, he was one that was always in, in prayer. Where this goes for us, Jesus, his hands were always busy in the midst of hands-on ministry. And I think this is just a powerful message to us today. In a day in which I would say we're more busily engaged, mentally engaged than we have ever been before. Whether it's, I mean, especially us, we live out here. you got to drive 40 minutes to get anywhere. So you add that on top of just the, the social media demands and just life's experiences and the way in which we, we serve. Um, but we can oftentimes be so given to meeting the needs. Let's just talk about parents. We can be so given to the, meeting the needs of our children that we don't take the time to pray for them. We don't take the time to do what would be the very greatest service to them. We can be so intent in glorifying God at our work, in our job, doing a good job, that we forget the most important thing, which is to pray for those in our workplace. We can be so busy doing good things for neighbors, for community, for church, that we forget the upward look. Instead, it becomes a quick, nervous nod from time to time. There's no active, ongoing prayer ministry and as, as we minister, as we minister, it's going to be imperative for us to have a, a very solid upward look. We talk about building this building. Lord willing, we, we sent off some drawings. We're hopefully going to get some renderings back in the next couple of weeks. We'll be able to share them with you. And that's all fine and good. It's good to see things on paper and in 3D. But if it's not just totally submerged in prayer, it's not, it's not going anywhere. We don't want it to go anywhere. We want it to be bathed in prayer. Uh, one of the one of the pastors I heard this week in preparation, he said, um, I would agree. Um, he said the number one sin in Christian culture today isn't sensuality. It's not materialism, though those are close behind, but it's prayerlessness. The number one, his, his thought was the number one sin amongst the Christian church is prayerlessness. Now, without a doubt, we are commanded to, in the Bible, we're commanded to pray. Jesus told his disciples, pray, don't give up. Uh, Luke, in Luke 18, he said, pray, don't give up. First Thessalonians, Paul says, pray continually. Peter, uh, did you guys get to verse 7 in the Expositor's Bible class today? Not quite there. You're, you're working your way. You're getting there. Verse at a time. Uh, or to be self-controlled so that we can pray. Confess your faults one to another, says in James. And pray in prayer for one another. And pray for one another. 
These are imperatives, meaning these are commands. These aren't suggestions. These are commands. I don't know if you've ever thought about prayerlessness as a sin before, but it's pretty, it's pretty um, convicting to, to think about that and to hear that. Um, no matter how busy we are, we must regularly expose, expose needs to the, the Lord in prayer, our souls to God in prayer. Uh, a few things that I'll just say we, we must be praying for. We must be praying for our own inner life. That, that, our, that our actions would line up with, with our words. Uh, that we would not allow ourselves to, to believe lies rather than to believe truth. We must, and I don't say this as an obligation, but this is just a cry from, from my heart to yours. We must be praying in detail for our families. We must. We must regularly pray for our neighbors. We must have a list of of missionaries and systematically pray for them. Uh, We must be praying daily for our church, for the leaders, for the programs, for the building, for our effectiveness in reaching this community with the gospel. Prayerlessness is, is, and I agree, it's a fundamental sin of a busy Christian. Uh, Spurgeon said, um, if we would give sight to the blind, we must ourselves be gazing into heaven. If we would give sight to the blind, we ourselves must be gazing into heaven. It's an upward look. Uh, a quick resource for you that Andy Poole shared with me, and it's already, we're going to incorporate it into our family devotions this next school year. It's called Pray for the World. It's a book, great book, by Operate, I don't know if it came through Operation Mobilization, but it just, it just, I just pulled out one country, it's got every country in the world, Sierra Leone, and it just gives in one page, which is what I like about it, because, you know, it's, otherwise it can be overwhelming, you just pick a page, um, it gives you the population, it gives you how, there's, in Sierra Leone, there's 770 Christians, 230 of them are evangelical, uh, the largest religion is Muslim, fastest growing religion, religion is Muslim, um, and it just kind of goes through, gives the economy, gives some background. But then it just gives you some simple ways to pray for this nation. Um, any of us can do this. And I know that I know what it's like. I mean, I know if I feel a lot of times incompetent to pray, I know that you feel that way sometimes as well. Well, this is simple. This is just laid out there for us. So um, what I would encourage you, if you, you Andy might even get you this book. <laughs> but it might be one of those things in which, which would be beneficial to you in this practical way. Uh, thirdly, thirdly. Uh, a genuine compassion. We see this in verse 34. Verse 34, it says this. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. He sighed. Um, being compassionate in, in Bible times was not popular, just like it's not popular today to be compassionate. Just look at what's going on in Charlottesville and in other places in our country. Compassion is not a, a value today. But here, what Mark is doing is he records this word sigh as this is actually probably more appropriately groaned. Jesus looks up to heaven and he groans with a, a strong sense of understanding of the pain that this deaf, mute man has been in. He groans. It's the same kind of word that's used when he's at Lazarus' tomb with Mary, when he's deeply moved in his spirit and he's greatly, greatly troubled. It's the same as Romans 8, the same word. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for for words. A genuine compassion, that's what Jesus does when he looks up. And he groans. 
He groans. Uh, when the church sighs like him in genuine compassion, power comes over the hurting. Matthew, Matthew 5, 4, and 7 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Are we a compassionate people? I think we're doing good. I think we're doing good. Is there areas to grow? I think so. We could always grow in these areas. I know I don't. That's kind of one of my indicators towards my softness towards the world around me and my softness towards the Lord is how often my eyes leak. You know, how often do I weep for the, 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 the sin that's around me, the sorrow of, of a life that's destroyed by sin, you know, the, the pain that we see over divorce and poverty and abortion and gender confusion and everything else, broken relationships. Jesus had a groaning. Jesus had a groaning. And then the fourthly and finally here, a timely word. A timely word. It says, and taking him aside, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he groaned and, and said to him, Epitha, that is, be, be opened. Now, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ in Romans 10. Uh, I don't find it insignificant that Jesus went through this process of, of giving and showing these means before he spoke a word. He wanted to communicate to this guy that it was okay, that he was, that he was safe. But too often, I would think, too often the words come first, don't they? Words come maybe before some of the other things. You've heard the, the cliche, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you cared. Well, Jesus seemed to get this in this example as he shows means to us. Um, and here's the fruit, verse 35. And his ears were opened, his tongue released, and he spoke plainly. Uh, <laughs> I love, as with our Lord, I mean, this is our Savior. Isn't he great? When he heals someone, it's complete and at the moment. It's a complete healing. This guy, he doesn't, he, he doesn't have to go to, you know, English is a second language class, or Greek is a second, or Aramaic is a second language class. He doesn't have to go to any speech therapists. He doesn't have to go to learn how to communicate and understand words. At Jesus' word, he was healed completely, comprehensively, and that's what our Savior does. That's just awesome. Now, but what he does next, think about this. This is nuts. This guy has not been able to hear or speak all of his life. Jesus fixes that, and then he does something which seems really mean. And frankly, when I look at this guy, I kind of give him a pass on disobeying. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's okay to disobey Jesus, but, but think about it like that. As soon as he's healed, he's never been able to hear or talk. What does Jesus say? He says, tell no one. <laughs> what? Are you, it was at the same place. A year ago, when he healed the demon-possessed guy, who you'd think would probably be a worse representative of Christ than this deaf-mute man, and he, he turns this demon-possessed man into his first missionary, but he doesn't let this guy speak? That doesn't work. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Of course. Of course they would. This is the thing that kicked me as I was prepping. Jesus commands this man and these people to be quiet and yet they went out and told everybody. We are commanded to go out and tell everybody. But do we tell anybody? It's like, oh, man. Mm. Mm. 
Verse 37. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more they said wisely, going on to verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. If, if we're to reach a hurting and lost world for the gospel of Christ, we can't do it without following the example of Christ and in this way, bringing a loving touch, a, an upward prayer, a compassionate, genuine heart, and, and speaking words of healing truth from the gospel of Jesus. Um, God doesn't need us to do this. He doesn't need us to do this. Just like that man who stood up in William Carey's church and said, God could... He could do exactly what that man said, but he doesn't choose to do that. He chooses instead to use us. To go back to close out with William Carey, that man, uh, he moved to India. It was a rough thing. He had a young family. Um, He moved to India. It took seven years. This guy who dedicated everything, it took seven years of, of incarnational ministry for him to get his first convert to Christ. This is a guy who moves to a country with zillions of people. I don't know what it was back then, but lots of people. And he gets one convert in seven years. And then by the end of his ministry there, he, he has 700 converts. Now that, you think, well, maybe that's a lot. Well, he didn't think that was a lot. And, and, and even in, in a country that big, people say, well, 700 is not a lot. But, however, um, he would have never guessed that he would be come because of his energies and his efforts, uh, his writing about the means of, of saving the heathens, he would become the, the, the picture that guys like David Livingstone and Hudson Taylor would look to as the example, as the example to take the ministry of Christ to, to unreached peoples of that day. Um, because he was willing to, to apply the means of the gospel in his world. So um, today, uh, I don't know exactly what the Lord is speaking to you. I want to encourage us in, in the application of this, um, if the application of this is that we would all commit ourselves to, to strategize a way this week that we would increase our prayer, our prayer efforts by one minute a week or one minute a day. And, and I kind of th- throw that out. You might think, well, what's one minute a day? And I just wanted to, I kind of took a, a low side of our average attendance on Sundays and say, okay, it's 150 people. If 150 people increase their prayer by one minute a day, you multiply that by 150. And I was terrible at math, but I wrote it down here. 150. And let's say we forget two days. So let's just say it's five days, not seven days. 150 times seven or five is 750 minutes divided by six. That's 12 hours, 12 and a half hours of additional prayer that immediately this church would have um, for gospel ministry, for the means of the gospel to go forth. So I think that's that's pretty doable, pretty reasonable. And uh, if a few of us are pulling together, wow, uh, that can make a huge difference for the kingdom.